I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Let's pray. Oh God, given what is coming in our own lives, let us not miss the good news and the bad news right now in Jesus. Amen. If you're looking for a job, and some of you are, here's a, here's a no-brainer piece of advice for you. Put your best foot forward. Whether you're using LinkedIn or Monster.com or Indeed.com, it doesn't matter. Put your best foot forward. Whatever you do, don't do what... I read about the other day a man, the true story, by the way, a man who answered his job application questions this way. Question number one, how do you compare yourself with the other applicants? Answer, I've worked much harder. <laughs> you know, that may work one time, but I wouldn't use it a whole lot. It's just, it doesn't say anything. Okay, question number two, give, give examples to your answer to question number one. Who, who comes up with these applications anyway? I mean, okay, give some examples. So he wrote, I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. Oops. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, 
I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches." End quote. Straight out of 2 Corinthians 11. He said, yeah, but wait a minute, Dwight. You said this is a job application. I'm telling you the truth. It is. The writer of these words is reapplying for a job he once had. He was the founding church plant pastor in the pagan city of Corinth. And then some imposters came to town, and he calls them in the same chapter, super apostles. And they persuaded the congregation to boot this pastor out. And so this writer is reapplying for his position with all his heart on the edge of his sleeves. He's wooing their hearts. And sharing a list you'll find nowhere else in all the sacred literature. There is never, you will never find anything like we just read, ever, ever, ever. He wants that job back. He loves his parish and his people. And because he has crafted this lengthy, this long, lengthy list of his own toils and sufferings, one writer has called this collection the most precious of treasures the church possesses today. It is incredible what we just read together and you heard on that video clip. My, 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 my. Did you, did you catch that line? I was pelted with stones once. Did you see that one go by real quick? I want to go to that. That is an unbelievable story. Let's relive it together. So you have Paul and you have Barnabas and you have Barnabas's young nephew, John Mark. They are reconnoitering in Asia. That would be today's Turkey, all right? They're looking for souls that they can point to Jesus. Where can we find one more for Christ? One more. And so they're living out of their backpacks. They're sleeping on the ground every night. They're wandering from city to city. They're thirsty. They're hungry. It's hot. It's cold as they trudge on. I'm telling you what, they are not vacationaries. They are missionaries, and there's a big difference. And by that, that, that uh, young man, John Mark, I'm telling you what, poor John, there's an, old, there's an old proverb somewhere that says, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the what? Get out of the kitchen. Well, the heat is up, and, and he hasn't seen anything yet. But the heat is up, and I'm telling you the truth, he cuts straight back to mother. Nope, he, went, he goes back to Jerusalem to his mother. His mother owns the upper room that Jesus and his disciples met in hours before Jesus is crucified Friday morning. In that upper room, the early church now was established headquarters, and John Mark is out of here. I want to say to the young Christians who are in this space right now or watching on, on uh, live stream, you might as well get it straight right here at the beginning. Becoming a Christian, as they say, ain't for sissies. You can wimp around. You can show up in church every now and then just to make an appearance. But if you don't have the guts to stand up on your own for the Lord Jesus Christ, forget it. If you think that following this Jesus business is a piece of cake. You're in the wrong birthday party. Just look at Paul and Barnabas, minus John Mark. Dr. Luke, the physician who turns the historian, and thank God we have him, paints the picture of the minus John Mark story now. So let's go to it. Let's go to Acts chapter 13, 
Verse 49, and the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Yes, it did. We're talking about Asia Minor now. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And by the way, there's the key word today, persecution. I want to give just this, this, this humble little suggestion. Some of you right now are going through immense suffering. You know who you are. I know who some of you are. I want you, every time you hear the word persecution, to think the word suffering. Will you do that? Every time you, hear the, you see the word or you hear the word persecution, you think suffering because it's all the same. Watch this. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they t- shook off the dust. As Jesus told them to do, Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet as a warning to them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Never mind persecution. They're still filled with joy. The people of the next city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. In fact, there was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. And so, taking the advice of Jesus, they found out about it and fled. Jesus says, you're persecuted in one city, flee to the next. They fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. I have a feeling that Paul and Barnabas are rather, rather relieved to arrive in Lystra because there is no Jewish colony in Lystra. It's a pagan city to the core. The, the Jews have been their, their, their giant nemesis. And they are Jews themselves, but they're Christians now. So they, they, they put the word out. We're having a public meeting in the city square, and the whole city shows up. Can you believe it? The place is packed, the square. Paul's a designated speaker today, so he stands up to speak. And he begins to, with passion, appeal to these pagan hearts. Listen, the gods that you've served, I'm telling you, we come representing the God creator of the universe who came to this planet to save the human race. Turn to him and be saved. While he is preaching his heart out, he notices something off to the side. And when you speak publicly, you can watch what's happening to the side. He's, there's a little movement over there. He's noticed a cripple who's sitting right over there in the corner. The cripple is, is, is intently drawn into what Paul is saying. And as Paul is speaking away, there's a voice inside of Paul that whispers, this would be a good time for a miracle. It's the Holy Spirit giving instructions. And so, so Paul looks over there, takes a deep breath, turns square, facing that cripple. Paul has no idea, by the way, he was born a cripple. He just knows he's a cripple now. And Paul turns to him and he says, my man, stand up right now if you believe. And the man jumps to his feet and the place, because the whole city knows he was born crippled. The place goes berserk. The crowd starts screaming. Paul and Barnabas can't tell what they're saying, but they're saying to each other, yo, these are the gods. They have come down at last in human form. Hermes is the chief spokesman, and this has to be Zeus, the older dignified one. They are here. And sure enough, the priest to the temple to Zeus just outside the city has gotten the word, and he's bringing a big old bullock because they're going to slaughter this ox. They have a wreath around the bullock. We're going to sacrifice to these gods. Finally, it hits Paul and Barnabas. What's going on? They, this is a Jewish expression of consternation. 
They rip their clothes and they go wading out into the crowd. It's, it's a noisy berserk. Stop, 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 time out, stop. We're not gods. We're just humans like you. But we've come to tell you about the creator God who can save you if you turn to him. It's, it's just unbelievable. An entire city? But wouldn't you know it? This life and this war being what it is, somebody saw and anticipated something like this. Some dark force saw it and has already sent from the previous city where Paul and Barnabas had been a delegation, the nemesis of Paul, a delegation of Jews. They, good timing, they show up when the city is going bonkers. They wade into the same crowd and say, hey, guys, guys, stop, 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 stop. Let me tell you something. They were just at our city. They worship demons, and the power that they display is from demons. They are dangerous. And fickle crowds being fickle in on a dime, they were going to worship these two. Now they're going to kill them. And they don't even take the time to drag Paul out of the city to stone him. They start stoning him right here. And everybody is pelting Paul with rocks until finally they drag what they assumed is his corpse out the gates, dump him beneath the walls. And a band, a band of brand new disciples of Jesus. Paul and Barnabas have already made some traction for the kingdom. That band gathers around the crumpled, battered, bloodied, and bruised form of their hero, and they weep. There's a young man in that group that some of you are named after. His name is Timothy. He's from Lystra, and Paul was his hero who led him to Jesus. Timothy weeps. But I'm telling you the truth. You can't believe this. While they are looking down, Paul leaps up. Watch this. Luke just, not, not a whole lot of drama around Luke's recitations, but after the disciples had gathered around the corpse, they thought it was a corpse of Paul, he got up and went back into the city, and lo and behold, the next day he and Barnabas leave for Derba. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want you to catch catch this moment with the young Timothy. Some of you are Timothy's age. Uh, The book, Sketches on the Life of Paul, from the life of Paul, these words. Timothy had been converted through the ministration of Paul in Lystra and was an eyewitness of the sufferings. He witnessed the rocks and the stoning. Eyewitness of the sufferings of the apostle upon this occasion. Timothy stood by Paul's apparently dead body and saw him arise, bruised and covered with blood, not with groans, not with murmurings upon his lips. Oh, no, 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 no. But he got up with praises to Jesus Christ that he was permitted to suffer for his name. Can you believe it? Come on. Somebody made the story up. Not at all. So Paul and Barnabas make the circuit out there. They're coming back from Durba. They come back to Lystra. They have been through so much trouble. This is their first trip ever outside of the, the, the Holy Land. 
They've gone through so much trouble. They have one message now. And you watch this. This is something. So this is verse 21, same chapter. Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel in that city of Derbe, and they won a large number of disciples over there. And then they returned to Lystra, and then the other two cities they had been in, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And here's their one-line teaching now. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Can you believe it? I mean, that's a no-brainer now, isn't it? 2,000 years later, would that be true for us? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Becoming a Christian is not for sissies. You got to be a man. You got to be a woman to stand up to the opposition. My, oh my, oh my. But the question that begs itself really is, why? I mean, come on, God. Are these your friends? Of course they're my friends. Why would you put your, th- your friends through this business called persecution? Why on earth do you do it? A careful examination of the life of Paul yields three answers to that question. I'll share the three and then sit down. Why would you do it? Answer number one. Let me put it on the screen for you. Reason number one, persecution is inescapable. That's why. I have been astounded as I've studied for this presentation at how nonchalantly everybody in the Bible seems to predict persecution as a given, a fait accompli. It just goes with the package. Why even Jesus himself, in the upper room that John Mark's mother owned, that night before his crucifixion, Jesus made the same prediction. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they do it to me, read my lips, they will do it to you. And by the way, that's precisely what Paul ends up predicting. Oh, this time, oh my, fast forward years. He's now manacled to the damp, subterranean dungeon walls of the Mamertine prison in which I have stood. They're absolutely sure this is where Paul was kept before his execution. We'll get to the execution two Sabbaths from now. He's manacled to that wall, but he's able to scribble his last letter to young Timothy, who's grown up now, his partner in the mission to save the world for Jesus. He scribbles one line, and here it is, my son, because he keeps calling Timothy his son, my son. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, not maybe, not perhaps, how does it read? Will be, will be, what's the word? Persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, 
My, oh my. This would be, why, why would that be? This would be a perfect place to take a line that Paul scribbled to the church in Ephesus and put it right here. Let's try it again. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted because Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, because our struggle is not against the flesh and blood, that's why, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. That's why there's persecution. You know why? Because we are in a war right now. We are in a war, and you're on one side or the other. There is no third side. Even sitting here, you can be on the other side. There are only two sides, and the war rages around us. Why persecution? Because this war that began with Cain, who rose up and slew his brother Abel, And ever since that first murder, the darkness of evil has sought to snuff out the light of righteousness, even if it means the shedding of innocent blood and the taking of life. We're in a war. And the bloody consequence is the guilty always turn on the innocent. You know why? Because the innocent living around the guilty are a painful reminder that they really are guilty. And people always pick on those who stand out. Goody two-shoes, they call them. Holy Joes or Jills. Goody, goody. Darkness always picks on light. Because if that woman, intrepid as her soul is, if that woman is going to give a testimony for Jesus now, look out, world, we're in trouble Smash her lips, break her heart, shut her up, kill her. Just kill her. We can't have her running around. So going on, folks, since Cain and Abel get used to it. Welcome to our world. Are you surprised at this? I hope not. Oh, my. You better believe you're going to be opposed you are going to be persecuted for your loyalty to the Lord Jesus. And by the way, I don't know if you were following the words there in the, in the mighty Reformation battle hymn, the, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We sang it just a moment ago. This is, by the way, Reformation weekend in Christendom. No, not all of Christendom. In Protestant Christendom, this is Reformation week because it was on an October 31 that that young monk walked up to the doors of the university church and nailed up a challenge, 95 challenges, to the then medieval power that rules religion. Yeah, and how does that song go that we sang a moment ago? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. We're in a war. So, Dwight, if we're in a war, then how come the church is doing so well in the West? (laughs) Good question. Why is there so much peace and prosperity, quote, unquote, in the church, and the caveat as in the West? I'll tell you why. Because the church is no threat to the devil. That's why. Look at these people, he says. They look just like the world. You can't tell them apart. They're no threat. Let them go. Let them do their rain dances inside that building on the campus. Who cares? They walk out of there. They just look like the rest. They act like the rest. They think like the rest. No problem with them. 
Am I making that up? No, the apocalyptic classic great controversy. These words, why is it then that persecution seems in a great degree to slumber? Answer, the only reason is that the church has conformed to the world's standard and therefore awakens no opposition. It is only because of the spirit of compromise with sin, because the great truths of the Word of God are so indifferently regarded, because there is so little vital godliness in the church that Christianity is apparently so popular with the world. However, let there be a revival of the faith and power of the early church, and the spirit of persecution will be re- Revived, and the fires of persecution will be rekindled, end quote. And that is the prediction of Jesus and Paul in Revelation 13. All three stand behind that prediction. Once your life and mine become a threat to the enemy, we will know the meaning of what Paul speaks. In his epistles, everyone, my son, my daughter, everyone, I must remind you, who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're not persecuted right now, maybe the question to ask is, am I living a godly life? Am I, Dwight? Am I? Three reasons from the life of Paul. We draw these from the life of Paul. Reason number one, persecution is inescapable. Reason number two, persecution is embraceable. What are you talking about there? Well, it's obvious. There's some reason why God allows the persecution of his children, and could it be that persecution, like all suffering, prepares the soul to lean on Jesus? Let me run something by you. I bet you've never seen this line before in your life. Let me run it by you. Robert Raines draws an intriguing moral from the midnight combat of of Jacob. You remember the story of Jacob and the unknown assailant by the brook Jabbok, where Jacob is is certain he he is wrestling with someone who seeks to destroy him. And those bodies, you remember, through the night, they're rolling in the dirt, the dust, at, at that brookside spot. Daybreak is soon to come, and the stranger realizes we've got to stop this. And the stranger reaches out with his finger, and he touches Jacob. And there is a searing pain from Jacob's hip all the way down his leg. Jacob collapses in the arms of the one he now knows is his God. Being held by the stranger now, Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And there... In the diminishing dark, the stranger says, you've been called cheater. I'm changing your name. You are now prevailer with God and man. And Jacob limped from that day forward. He limped. Robert Raines, with a powerful twist to the story, composes this single line, whom God names, he lames. I'm going to let that hang in front of you for a moment. Whom God names, he lames. What's that about? Could that be a reason why God allows persecution? Paul knew, by the way, all about such laming. Oh, yes, Paul. Paul knew. In fact, three times he tells us, I went to Jesus direct. 
And I said, listen, I cannot go with this laming anymore. This is, this is absolutely cramping my ministry. This is ruining my life. Take this away. He never tells us what it is. He calls it a messenger from Satan. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. We have no idea. A thorn in the flesh. What is this? We don't know. He just says, remove it from me, and I'll be even greater for you. And finally, after the third time of pleading for this, Jesus shows up himself. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Jesus said to me, Paul is recounting this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions. You see that word? I delight in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am what? Come on, what is it? Then I am what? I'm strong. When I'm lamed, I'm strong. Whom God names, he lames. You've been named by God. If you chose Jesus, you are named. That's my girl. That's my follower. That's my boy. That's my man. He's mine. You've been named. And when he names you, he will lame you. Why? So that you have no choice but to lean hard, as Jacob did, on the Savior. As Paul now does, he has no choice but to lean on Jesus. That old gospel hymn, leaning on Jesus, leaning on Jesus, safe and secure from all alarm. Lean, whom God names, he lames. Which is why Paul actually makes three confessions. I used to think it was just one. I tell you, I've been all over the world preaching the one, and then the other day I found out there were two, and so I, we shared that last Sabbath, but I now have discovered, oh, man, come on. Here we go. This is the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 10. Paul's great exclamation, I want to know Christ. Man, I preach that everywhere. That's the passion, and it's true. It's the passion of the Christian heart. I just want to know Jesus. I just want to know Christ. And for all these years, I thought, that's the passion. And then I discovered several months ago that, in fact, there's a part two to this. I want to know Christ, yes, and I want to also know the power of his resurrection. And so last Sabbath, when we were talking about being holy gods, W-H-O-L-L-Y, the power of the resurrection that enables us to do that. I said, I can add that prayer. I like that. I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection, but only this week it hits me. There's a third part to this confession, and I'm sorry to have to share this with you. I want to know Christ, number one. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. Yes, but here comes number three, and I want to know participation. The word is koinonia. We all know that word. It means partnership or fellowship. I want to know fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I can't believe it. You could have gone all day and not told me that. The third I want to know is I want to share Jesus' sufferings. No. No. Why? N.T. Wright, commenting on this one line. This is good. In this book that... uh, 
a marvelous book, Paul, a biography. Paul has learned that this personal knowing, this personal knowledge of Christ the Messiah finds intimate expression in suffering. The reason there's a number three is because suffering with Jesus creates a deeper intimacy than any other experience in the human journey. I want to know Christ. Amen. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Me too. I want to know the fellowship in his sufferings. Nah. Are you sure? Why does God allow persecution of his friends? Because persecution keeps you leaning on your Savior. It was that way for Jacob. It was that way for Paul. It will have to be that way for you. And I take a deep breath. It will have to be that way for me. Suffering with Christ. Fellowship in his sufferings. What's that line again? Whom God names. I'm telling you, if God has given you a name, and I know he has, I know a lot of you, he has given you a name. But then we must remember, whom he names, he lames. Three reasons from the life of Paul why persecution is so critical. Persecution, number one, is inescapable. Number two, persecution is embraceable. Because when you embrace it, the Savior embraces you. And you are drawn to him in a way you will never be drawn to him. And finally, number three, persecution is redeemable. What do you mean by that? Well, one of the great stories of persecution with a triumphant, though very painful ending, is the story about Paul and Silas. Everybody loves this story. Paul and Silas in that little Philippian jail, they have just been whipped. I mean, we're talking about scourging now. Their backs have been laid wide open. There's no 40 less one. That's the Jewish uh, method. It's just, we just lash them until they're half dead and then stop. Their backs are an open wound. They're manacled now, wrists shackled, ankles, and they're in this Philippi prison house. And you know what they're doing? They're swallowing up their suffering in singing. They're swallowing up their suffering in singing. (laughs) You can't believe it. They're singing psalms. They're singing hymns, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, to Christ their Lord. Everybody remembers the dramatic moment. Middle of the night, they're singing at the top of their lungs, distracted from their pain, perhaps, when all of a sudden Mother Nature with this massive the place about falls apart, and all the doors to the cells are open. Miraculously, all the chains fall off. The pagan jailer who has whipped these boys, races out and realizes one quick look, oh, no, they're gone. And knowing he will be held by the empire responsible for their flight, he is preparing now to fall on his sword when a voice in the dark says, don't do that. We're all here. And I want you to listen. And the Savior, the, 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 uh, the jailer, they bring a torch. And he's looking into the faces of those two who have been singing through the night. And he asks one question. What do I have to do to be saved? Now, why would you ever ask a question like that in a moment like that? Oh, 
He has watched these men suffer, and he has concluded, whatever they have, whatever they have, I want it. I want it. Quick is their answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. And the entire household, the jailer and his family, all got saved, baptized that night. Unbelievable. What's going on here? What's going on here is that God can take our persecutions and transform them into redeeming acts to save the soul of another. The jailer and his family, pagans, all got saved. By the way, when Stephen is being stoned to death, and Jesus stands up on the throne, and he's watching that boy, his life being extinguished, Jesus whispers, but out of your death, I'll win Saul. Anyone saw, and the entire history of the planet has been changed. It took Stephen's willingness to be persecuted unto death, but it's redeemable. I win, and one day you and I will be standing there, and I, you'll hold my nail-scarred hand, Stephen. You'll hold my hand, and I'll say, Stephen, I want you to see who's here because you died. And there will be a number that no man can number. We've all been affected. One day, he'll go, he said, girl, come here. Some of you are suffering right now, and it feels like there is no good coming out of this. I'm going to die. And all my prayers have been turned down. They haven't been turned down. They have been answered God's way. And one day, when you're resurrected to life, the same nail-scarred one will call you and say, come here, come here, stand by me. I want all of you who are affected by her testimony, I want you to walk forward right now. And you're going to start crying because you never knew that what you've been suffering was being used to save lost people for Jesus. So don't quit. Don't bail out now. One day, you'll see your persecution, your suffering has been redeemable. And heaven will have people that, we, that would never have been there had it not been for your suffering. Oh, my. The body they may kill, we just sang. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You may die, but God has the last word. You'll see. It's no wonder in the chapter where John the Baptist gets his head cut off in Desire of Ages. The chapter ends with these words. Of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men and women, fellowship with Christ in his sufferings is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. There is no higher honor than to suffer with Christ. You'll make it. You'll make it. Don't you back off. You're going to make it. You'll see. And that's why Paul, this is, this is the summit of the New Testament, I'll tell you. This is the pinnacle of the New Testament, the last words of Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution 
or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, to which I say amen. What do you say? Come on. Amen. And amen. I want to pray with you. Oh, God. Why do you do it? And now we can see a bit more clearly there's a reason. There's a reason. Oh, Jesus, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you live for just one more. Can you find just one more for me? I died for her. I died for him. And dear God, if you are saying that my suffering, our suffering, would somehow reach her, reach him, as no other avenue has been able to, then give us the courage and the grace to also declare, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ my Lord. Thank, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. There's only one next step today. This is a tough one. Don't move. I don't want anybody leaving the space right now. This is a tough one. If you'll, if you'll electronically uh, to your phone, just text Paul 5, that's this particular teaching, to the familiar number 269-281-2345. My next step today is just one box. I want to know Christ through the fellowship of his sufferings. I'm telling you, you're going to have to think before this one. This is not while everybody else is making the decision, so I will. No, 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 not now. I want you to think about it. Just look at this screen. Let the words of that next step penetrate your soul. Can you say today, some of you are hungry for intimacy with Christ. This is, the, this is the final step to intimacy. But don't do this because the preacher preached on it. If the Spirit is speaking to your heart, you may need some time to think about it. You may not click anything, and that's fine by me. There's only one choice today. I want to know Christ through the fellowship of his sufferings. That's a dangerous prayer. That's a dangerous next step. It'll be the greatest next step you ever take. It'll bring the greatest joy to your heart you will ever experience. But be forewarned. God will take you serious. He will take you seriously. I want to know Christ through the fellowship of his sufferings. There's only one person listening to your answer now, and it's not me.
If you're ready to say yes, say it. Your world will not come crashing in. And whatever God brings to our lives, He prepares us for in advance, so you'll be okay. But it's a big deal. Yes, I want to know Christ through the fellowship of His sufferings. Let you brood over that. Meditate on the love of God before you answer this. Meditate on the love of God right now.